1: That's audible.com slash wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500, 500
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. So how bad is it in the world of airlines? I'll be talking with Dan Reed of Forbes with his report on the real numbers. And they aren't very pretty. Next, we'll answer a question that a lot of you have been asking lately. How clean is the air inside your plane cabin? With Harvard professor Joseph Allen. And we'll then cross the pond to speak to one of our regulars, Simon Calder from The Independent in London. Which European countries might be open to travel? You might be surprised. First up, Dan Reed. If you take a look, I mean, travel has become... I've been arguing it for years. Now the argument has been proven. Absolutely front-page news. It's going to stay with us all as front-page news for the foreseeable future. And you cannot wake up in the morning without seeing stories like Boeing laying off 13,000 people, British Airways laying off 12,000 flight attendants, and then maybe hiring them back at, at half salary, uh, airlines being grounded, uh, airports being closed. And uh, It's continuing and continuing and continuing. Regardless of anything else. Uh, and joining me now, somebody who follows us very closely, especially in the airline business, he's our good friend, Dan Reed from Forbes. How are you, sir?
2: Hey, I'm good. Peter, how are you doing?
0: Well, I guess I'm okay. I'm, I'm not on an airplane, which bothers <laughs> me a lot, but, but I will get out there soon, as I suspect most of my listeners will. But before that happens, let's take a little trip down memory lane. There was a time not that long ago, when the CEO of American Airlines, Doug Parker, uh, said more or less the following, we're never going to lose money again. We're always going to make a profit, even in bad years. You just reported a story today where 30% of their management has been cut, where thousands of their employees are taking involuntary leaves. And that same Mr. Doug Parker is denying rumors that American may file for bankruptcy.
2: Well, uh, yeah, you got to be careful what you say. When he said, "You know, no matter how bad it's going to get, we're not going to make." And I think he was actually referring to the entire industry. We're never going to lose money again because he believed they had fixed the the industry's chronic money losing problems uh, via consolidation and whatnot. Uh, it was foolish to say it then, and I wrote it uh, in in my column in Forbes. Uh, I wrote that it was foolish to say that because. There's always something in the airline industry that's going to happen that's going to screw up your your best laid plans. Well, that something this time is called uh, coronavirus or COVID nineteen, and it's been devastating. And so they 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 will lose money this year. They lost a boatload in the first quarter. They will lose a, even more in the second quarter. And uh, I, they don't expect. Uh, I don't. Even, no one expects them to be uh, profitable in the third or fourth quarters. And it may be a couple three more years before they get back to even. And even the definition of even has been brought down, too. So, sure.
0: You know, and, you know, it, last it, week... It's
2: an ugly situation.
0: Last week I was on CBS Sunday morning and reported that, uh, just based on the numbers that I've been reading, uh, United Airlines on any given day, although I think those numbers have improved a little bit, but still, it was a staggering statement that on any given day United was flying about 10,000 people, United has 12,250 pilots, which means... United's is flying fewer people than the airline has pilots. That's right. not a good business model.
2: No, that that would you know, then you throw in all the mechanics, the flight attendants, the gate agents, the ramp handlers. Mechanics, all off the office staff. yeah, they have got like, you know, they're running like a four to one ratio of employees to passengers. Not good. Uh no, it's just it's awful.
0: It is and it
2: doesn't it's not going to come back uh anything close. I mean, I talked with Doug Parker at American yesterday, and he was using the phrase 2019 revenues in 2021 are not going to happen. They're not going to get close. Uh, So, you know, so the definition of coming back has to be dumbed down because there is no going back there in the short or even near term.
0: And of course, American is not alone united's got serious problems they're gonna have to unless i'm crazy and then they've already, teleg- they've already telegraphed this that when september 30th rolls around and and they're no longer required to uh, keep everybody on its full salary to get the government bailout money they're going to be saying goodbye to a couple of thousand people
2: oh yeah i think it'll actually be more than a couple of thousand uh i think they'll have three to four thousand pilots uh laid off at that point um I mean, the pilots will get their notices well, well in advance of that. But I think October one, that happens, and they may do it in tranches. They may not do it all in one day, but it will happen very shortly. And if you are laying off pilots, there there are usually three times as many flight attendants as there are pilots, so the numbers there will be three times larger. Mechanics, ramp workers, gate agents, office staff, yeah, they're all going that, to be going that way, and that's and, yeah. that's a sad reality.
0: Yeah, Delta Airlines already said they felt they had about 6,000 pilots, too many right now. That's amazing when yeah. you think about this, Dan, because it wasn't very much, oh, wait, 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 three months ago we were talking about the problem with pilot shortages. There weren't enough pilots. Well, guess what? Not a problem now. It's terrible. Uh, then you have the yeah. bankruptcies and the outright failures. You know, we've seen... Virgin Australia grounded in in Australia, we've seen Avianca grounded in Bogota, we've seen so many other airlines in Europe going the same route, or being nationalized, and then here's Delta that just did a, what, a $1.9 billion acquisition, if you will, of LATAM, and uh, they just filed down in South America. Yeah,
2: Yeah, LATAM, which of course is a, a conglomeration of airlines, but the parent company and most of the operating units filed bankruptcy. In various countries in Latin America uh, yesterday, well, Delta owns 20% of them, and they just paid earlier this year $1.9 billion. They will probably get, you know, if they get any money at all, it will be a few pennies on the dollar out of that. I doubt they'll get much because they're shareholders, they're common shareholders in, in bankruptcies. Shareholders at the end of the line, there won't be right. much there for them to get.
0: Okay, let me ask the stupid question here, because there's a definitional difference between bankruptcy and liquidation. So if Avianca's declared bankruptcy, or LATAM, it doesn't mean they are going to cease to operate and be chopped up. Not necessarily. Which of these airlines do you think has a chance of getting back?
2: Oh, that's crystal ball stuff, and my crystal ball is pretty cloudy. However, um, yeah, you're right. It- there's a difference. It, different laws in different countries they handle bankruptcy different ways. In the U.S. mindset, there is Chapter 11, which is reorganization, Chapter 7, which is liquidation. We will assume all these companies want to do the the equivalent of Chapter 11, uh, uh, reorganization. I think uh, Virgin Australia has a good chance of coming back because it is effectively the only competition. Qantas has in the domestic Australian market Uh, Virgin uh, Australia will they'll attract some interest yeah does it come back in the same form probably somewhat different somewhat smaller they may even change the name
0: my thanks to Dan Reed and now to breathe a little easier maybe maybe my conversation with Harvard professor Joseph Allen on his research into the quality of the air on board your next flight. So I want to introduce my next guest with a little story. And this goes back 20 years ago when you may remember we had smoking allowed on airplanes, smoking and non-smoking. And I wanted to find out how bad the air filtration systems were on the planes. So I went during one of their normal maintenance procedures and I asked them to basically pull out the side panels of the planes on the interior, and let's check out the filters. It was disgusting. We saw tar stacked up, I mean, completely embedded in the filters because that's what those filters were ingesting as the air was circulating around the planes. Well, we've gone a long way from there, obviously no longer smoking a lot on the planes, but the filtration systems have improved. And at the same time, we're dealing with a lot of deep-seated fear right now about travel in general, about your safety in terms of bacteria and the opportunity maybe to catch a virus on a plane. We all know the protocols of cleaning up all the the hard surfaces that your skin will touch on a plane, the tray table, the seat backs, the armrests, the headrests, um, and even the window shades, I suppose. I always like to to wipe down the, the air nozzle itself. But what about the filtration system? Can an airplane really make you sick? based on this, the air that's circulating. My next guest may know the answer to that. He's the Assistant Professor of Exposure Assessment Science. What a great title. I wish I I could have used this guy during my single days when I was dating based on that on that title alone, Exposure Assessment Science at Harvard at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And he's also the co-author of the book, Healthy Buildings. Joseph Allen, well, welcome to the show.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I,
0: I, and I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of your title. I love your title. Uh, So let's talk about this. You know, we talk about the HEPA filters that are on modern-day aircraft, how much the air is recirculated. uh, How Most people don't realize how air comes into the plane, right? It's, It's coming in from the engines. It's then heated, brought in, and then purged. But it happens a lot, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, I think most people would be surprised to know that the air quality on the airplane is actually, actually quite good, um, and I can explain that that a bit, and it, and it follows you know, the piece I wrote in The Washington Post last week that basically said, uh, I think what most people find surprising, uh, you don't get sick on an airplane, really. Uh, and that's because what's happening, is you say, you know, we get about 10 to 12 air changes per hour, so that's how much fresh air comes in per hour. Uh, on most airplanes the air is bled off the engine it's called bleed air it comes in off right. the engines and then it's heated
0: then it's heated and then
3: it's heated. yep and then uh, so it, you know and then uh, that's about 50 percent of the air the other 50 percent is recirculated the recirculated air all goes through a HEPA filter so HEPA filter is a high efficiency filter capture 99.97 percent of particles um, and so the air you know, coming from outside is real clean. 50% is uh, fresh outdoor air, 50% is recirculated through HEPA filters, uh, and it's quite good. And actually that's similar to what we have find in an airborne, isolation, uh, airborne infection isolation room in a hospital. They get about six to 12 air changes per hour and recirculated air goes through a HEPA filter. Um, so it actually, the time on the airplane is the lowest risk uh, in terms of your whole travel experience. But of course
0: there's all this anecdotal evidence and I, I qualify it by saying anecdotal, of uh, people who were flying a couple of years ago and the, the passenger in 3B had the flu and sneezed, and then the passenger in 18A uh, got infected. Is that even possible?
3: Yeah, it's absolutely possible. Um, and so I want to put it in the right context. Let me just give a little background. You know, I've been studying airplane, air cabin air quality for over 10 years. And in 2013, I was one of the lead authors of a National Academies report on infectious disease mitigation in airports and on airplanes. Incidentally, one of our key recommendations was airports should have a pandemic preparedness plan. Um, But to your point about the the question about, you know, does this happen? Yeah, it it occasionally happens. The point I make in this piece is this. Billions of people fly. Uh, We have millions of flights every year. And if you look at the historical record, the number of times we have an outbreak linked to an airplane, it's very few. Um, And it reminds me a little bit of like an airplane crash, right, if an airplane crashes, it's a tragedy, it is front page news, it doesn't mean air travel is not safe, right? Uh, The same thing here, there have been some high profile examples where someone in a seat infected, or we think infected people in an adjacent seat, um, but this is one airplane out of, you know, many millions of flights. If the airplane was higher risk, we'd see a lot more of this. Um, Now, to be fair, when people say, you know, I know I get sick when I travel, uh, that might be true. I just don't think it's the case that you get sick on the airplane because you can never disentangle the full travel experience. Every time you take an airplane, you're also in security queues. You're at the gate, at the jetway. You maybe take a bus, a subway, a taxi. You stay in a hotel room. You didn't have great sleep the night before. And all of these things are going to influence, you know, whether or not you you may get sick.
0: Now, let me ask the obvious question based on what you just said. I get it because I fly so much on airplanes uh, about the filtration system because it was explained to me a couple of years ago and thank you for explaining it again. But what about the actual air quality at the airport and all the different touch points that you pass through, whether it's security, the gate, my favorite one, of course, the jetway uh, where you're queuing up. I mean, you could be affected at any one of those points, can't you?
3: Yeah, that's right. So I think when we're traveling, we have to be hyper vigilant, and, you know, the new piece I wrote um, took the same structure from that 2013 National Academies report and said, look, there are things the airport should do, there are things the airplane or airlines have to do, and there are things the air traveler have to do. In terms of the airport, they should be doing many of these healthy building strategies. I talked I had a book published last month called Healthy Buildings. They need to be deploying these healthy building strategies like bringing in more fresh outdoor air, filtering the air, just like you would on an airplane, higher efficiency filtration. They're also going to need to manage the queuing of people very carefully, in particular, at security and in the waiting areas and try to maintain as much physical distancing as possible. I also think uh, mask wearing should be mandatory from the second you're actually on the way to the airport through the whole travel experience in terms of what the airline should do. Um, They need to choreograph the loading of these airplanes very carefully. Uh, They should be also ending in-flight service. And here's one that I don't think most people know, but our measurements have shown, the measurements taken on airplanes, that when the plane is at the gate, they don't always have the ventilation system running. And
0: they turn the the APU off. Yeah, I know.
3: That's right. Yeah, I think that's that's a problem. I don't think most people recognize that, and our testing has showed, and and, and we know this, right? If if that's not running, too, is now you have a lot of people going into a small-volume space without the benefit of the fresh air coming in or getting the benefit of the high-level filtration.
0: Yeah, you know, the airlines are reluctant to do that because it's it's fuel burn or they have to be ground-started, and the electricity to run that operation has to be hooked up to the plane. A lot of them don't do it because they want to turn the planes fast. It's a very important point. So I think part of what you're talking about is already starting to happen with airports, you know, enacting new rules that you can't even get into an airport without wearing a mask. So it's not a question of getting to the gate to find out you've got to put it on. You better show up wearing it, right?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, it's good practice. You know, I wrote a piece in The Washington Post a couple, uh, maybe six or eight weeks ago saying— Uh, you know, universal mask wearing should happen. There's a lot of benefits. So people should be leaving, shouldn't be leaving their home without a mask anyway. And certainly if you're gonna travel, you should be wearing on the way to the airport through the entire airport. You know, I think one way that we can minimize risk here is that the air travelers also have to do their part. Uh, Like I said, be hyper vigilant here. This is a time to have your mask on, be respectful of others, give yourself a lot of extra time uh, and, and do your part here. Uh, and I, you know, I think it'll be a little bit. The early days will be akin or remind me of what maybe the post 9/11 experience, where, you know, the the enhanced security protocols. It took some time to work out those yeah. kinks. It's very frustrating. It as a travel. I think we'll see something very similar. Eventually, we'll get it to be a lot more efficient. But in the early days, it's going to be a bit frustrating.
0: My thanks to Professor Allen. Simon Calder is the senior travel editor of The Independent in London. And, like me, he's almost always on a plane somewhere in the world. This time around, also like me, he's grounded. But he does have his ear to the ground as well, with a real-world report on which European countries may be opening the doors first to travelers. Joining me now, one of our regulars on the show... Uh, who normally would be traveling all around the world but like me is stuck where he lives which happens to be in london where he works as
4: the senior travel editor at the independent mr simon calder how are you sir oh peter very good to talk to you Uh, it would be even better to meet up but i sense that we're not going to be able to do that for um well i was hoping to say weeks possibly even months uh clearly the world from our uh, respective perspectives has changed utterly. And all we can do is look back on the uh, uh, great adventures that, that um, we've all been able to enjoy and try and look forward to figure out how the future of travel is going to look. And I know you've been doing an awful lot of that.
0: I have. And, and you know, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that because the UK is expecting perhaps another wave of the, of COVID-19, They're now going to start enforcing another
4: 14-day quarantine restriction any day now. It it is the most bizarre thing. Um, Just as the rest of the world is opening up to tourism, um, just as the airlines are really getting off the ground, um, certainly in Europe, uh, they're they're starting actually quite plausible networks uh, uh, all the way through uh, June and into July. um, The UK has suddenly said, right, um, even though we're absolutely the biggest aviation power in Europe, we're going to close everything down. Um, this is has exactly nothing to do with science, with medicine. It has entirely everything to do with uh, politics and the fact that the uh, ruling party has been getting less and less popular. They see this as a, a fairly fairly cheap and easy political stunt um, that, uh, yeah, sure, is going to damage the uh, travel industry. Yes, it's going to stop people enjoying the freedom to travel that they were so looking forward to but um it's all about uh, votes i'm afraid and, and and so therefore it's being brought in but there has been such a backlash peter against it within the uk uh because pretty much anybody who's got any relationship whatsoever with the travel industry realizes it's just going to destroy hopes and dreams and jobs um and and so <laughs> effectively in the past 48 hours or so we've seen government ministers coming out and saying yeah we're only going to do it for three weeks we're only really pretending um uh, so if you can bear it through most of june then promise we, we promise that uh, by july we'll still pretend it exists but um actually we'll come <laughs> up with, with lots of loopholes and there's already a huge huge gaping loophole for anybody who flies into london Heathrow. um we, we don't have testing on arrival to see if you have coronavirus but we've got a uh, a much more bizarre thing which is that you land at Heathrow which you will know way way too well you stay airside you um by a, a quick and easy one at one hour hop across to Dublin and back and you in, in Dublin you just stay airside as well but you um you touch foot on I- Irish Irish soil which means that when you come back you have bypassed the 14 days of uh, self-isolation. It is absolutely bizarre, but that's what the government is determined to do, and uh, it's upset. So what you're suggesting, Simon,
0: so what you're suggesting is if you want to go to London this summer, uh, book a flight to Ireland and then come in.
4: Well, no, uh, because the UK isn't yet open for tourism, as it were, and I think we probably won't be until probably the start of July, Um, At which point the government will have ended meaningful uh, quarantine because uh, it it is clearly medically um, completely unnecessary and economically extremely damaging. So I wouldn't worry about it. But of course, anybody in, say, the US who's thinking, oh, I'd love to go to Europe this summer, you know, even if... um, it's it's been tough, and even though the world will be will be different, um, are I'm afraid uh, going to be put off booking anything yet. And I, I'd be so interested to know, Peter, how many trips you've got actually booked? You know what the answer is right now.
0: For the first time in my life, here it comes, zero. Oh no, I've got oh. zero. That's it, because I could easily get on a plane today, and most Americans could as well. There are flights operating. But the problem is we have right now 100% of the world's destinations having some form of travel restrictions and 72% of those countries are closed. So they've even closed their airspace. So it's sort of academic to even try to to spend time planning something when you know what those numbers are. Now, you're in London, I'm looking at what's going on in Spain, I'm looking at what's going on in Italy and France. Uh, Italy is starting to open up. Spain says they want to open up one day. They change their mind the next. The prime minister is trying to do another quarantine. Then he backs off from it the next. We're seeing here economics and medicine at odds with each other uh, and, and uh, with no easy solution in sight since there's no global leadership involved in setting the standards that could allow either us to not go
4: anywhere or for us to go everywhere. Yeah, yes, and it's going to be very, very messy rush right across Europe. But there, there, there's a couple of things happening. First of all, there is a bit of a consensus emerging that Europe is going to kind of open up on on uh, June fifteenth, and there's also a consensus that the airlines are going to start flying proper. Schedules which will look recognisable where you will have multiple flights for, from, say, London to Barcelona uh, in Spain um, from, from uh, the start of July. And actually, we're also seeing an arms race between tourism-dependent countries as to who can lure people back the quickest. So at the moment, way in the lead is Croatia, um, the uh, former Yugoslav Republic, Which has a wonderful Adriatic coastline, as you know, and they uh, uh, last week. uh, So uh, that they they called me and said, "Um, "Yeah, we're open. All you need to do is get here with an accommodation reservation, because the last thing they want, of course, is people turning up uh, and and having nowhere to stay. If you've got an accommodation reservation, in you come and you can stay as long as you want. And sure, life is different, but uh, uh, you'll still be um, able to enjoy a sunny." Vacation, and um, we're we're glad to have you. And you've also got um, Italy, very very pro tourism, France gradually opening up. Spain, I think we have now settled on the place opening up on the first of July, and Portugal, which is so tourism dependent, um, is is basically saying right, we we need you back, and uh, we'll we'll effectively, even though we've got a really good uh, coronavirus record. We'll drop our guard in order to uh, uh, preserve jobs and try to rebuild our economy. So, the minute one wall drops, they all they all drop. Uh, we, we, yeah, I mean, it was. If if you cast your mind back to May March, forgive me, um, you lose all sense of time. I know you do. <laughs> the, 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 you suddenly saw one barrier after another coming up, and it was uh, getting very, very. It's scary and confusing, and of course, many people found themselves the wrong side of other people's uh, other countries' lockdowns. Uh, and it's ha- now happening in reverse, where we're seeing barriers fall away so quickly that, uh, uh quite soon, I think we'll be spoiled for choice and the uh, countries will be desperate to get us back. The
3: big but question you know, now, is, yeah. oh no, I'm sorry, please,
4: go ahead, Simon. Go ahead. Uh, I was gonna, the, the big question is, um, how many people actually. Want to travel, and certainly in terms of going internationally within Europe, I'm seeing a very solid majority who are saying, "Nope, we um, we've had a difficult start to uh, 2020. We don't want to take any chances. We're comfortable at home. Um, we'll wait and see what happens, and we'll basically wait for 2021." 20, if you
0: look back historically, uh, whether it was the 2008 recession. Or even the volcano that erupted in Iceland in 2010, or right after 9 11, the travel industry took out the old playbook and figured, okay, we're going to lure people back by discounting our way out of this.
4: Are you seeing that now? Uh, I'm seeing it a little bit. Um, Let me give you one example uh, flying from here in London to uh, Tenerife, uh, the loveliest of the Canary Islands, which is a four hour flight. So you're kind of. Uh, talking roughly New York, I don't know, to Vegas or something. Um, and that is going to cost you round trip, including taxes. Uh, it will cost you $40. Um, so, say that again? So wait, wait, wait. say that again? Uh, yeah, for, for $40. So $40, <laughs> um, 15 pounds each way. Um, and so there are undoubtedly deals around and that, that is part of the kind of aggressive strategy of Ryanair, the biggest budget airline in Europe. But in general, the, and I'm sure this is the pattern that will be followed more or less worldwide, um, the, the idea is that carriers will be tr- keeping a lid on capacity because they know that, uh, well, they're, they're very uncertain about what demand levels will settle at this summer. Um, but they know that if there's rather too much demand for the uh, uh, supply of seats, that they'll be able to raise their prices way above uh, uh, what they might otherwise charge and therefore start trying to recoup the billions of dollars that they have been losing um, so they'll be doing a bit of that. We've even heard, but heard, but um, difficult to pin down, um, individual countries uh, coming up with uh, all kinds of deals. There was a story going around last week, you might have heard of it, of um, uh, Japan saying, we'll pay half your airfare and half your accommodation costs. Actually, when I investigated, they weren't saying that at all. They were saying to domestic travellers within Japan, because they uh, they're, they're keeping their barriers against foreigners, foreign tourists coming in. They're saying, um, yeah, you can uh, we'll pay you 20,000 yen, uh, uh, which is uh, roughly 180, maybe 200 dollars in order for you to holiday in Japan. But they're certainly not going to say, Peter, we (laughs) know just what you need. It's a fantastic trip to Tokyo and Kyoto and uh hokkaido and so on and over you come and we'll we'll, we'll you know just just send us the uh, credit card receipt and we'll pay you half your costs they're not going to be doing that sicily was saying yeah we're going to pay give everyone a 50 euro incentive i'm not sure we're going to see those yet there will be kind of back back room deals of, of the sort where individual locations will be working with with uh travel agents with airlines to uh uh, kind of make their destinations look particularly good value um it, it is going to be a bit of a, a an undignified scramble if i may yeah i think so
0: and then of course there's the airport you leave from we saw the news reports that virgin's pulling out of uh, gatwick and british airways is pulling out of gatwick um yeah i mean
4: what's going to happen to that secondary airport Uh, Exactly. Um, Everybody is consolidating around their strengths. And so you are seeing all these marginal routes being pulled. So, for example, British Airways um, uh, was going to start was going to serve this summer, Charleston, South Carolina um, uh, into London Heathrow. That that route has has gone. Um, They will be concentrating on the Heathrow to JFK uh, trip. And Heathrow is absolutely Uh, the place to be. This uh, until um, the beginning of March was by far the busiest two runway airport in the world. They were talking about building a third runway. It's now operating from half the normal number of terminals on just one of the two runways. And that's a pretty quiet uh, uh, runway too. So um, we we are going to see um, consolidation at Heathrow. JetBlue, interestingly, Robin Hayes, the uh, British chief executive of uh, uh, the New York-based airline, um, is very, very keen on, on snapping up slots at Heathrow. And already, just one tiny, tiny example, the Czech airline, CSA, which left Heathrow about 20 years ago, having sold its slots there for tens of millions of dollars, is now coming back because you can pick up uh, slots at Heathrow for for 50 cents. It's a uh, extraordinary turn of events. Meanwhile yes, that, this, this, it's an
0: extraordinary turn of events if you can get a slot at Heathrow at any time, let alone 50 cents.
4: That's amazing. Oh, sure, and and as a result, the secondary airports are suffering. Um, we are going to see particularly marginal communities. You know, maybe some of the, the routes serving uh, the more distant corners of Europe. They're they're just going to go. Everybody will be concentrating on Frankfurt to Madrid and Rome to Berlin and Paris to uh, to Vienna. Those those core routes between the big cities, rather than. The kind of fly anywhere you want to, at almost any price, which we were enjoying very much in the uh, summer of 2019. Wow, a lot to think about. Not to mention the fact
0: that it's going to change the opportunities that we have to travel. Not just the price, but the routes themselves. Simon Calder, the senior travel editor of the Independent. Always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. And a lot more to talk about in the days, weeks, and months ahead. My thanks to Simon Calder, also to Dan Reed and Joseph Allen. And thank you. For listening to the Ion Travel Podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Ion Travel Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news updates. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or